Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and this week, again, after a two-week absence, I'm delighted to say I'm being joined by Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities, who's come back tanned and fit from his holiday, ready to tell us all about what's been happening this week, uh, even though I have to be honest and say that this has been a very, very quiet week by normal standards. There hasn't been a huge amount of news, and many of the main market players are still on holiday, of course. So there is an important meeting coming up this weekend, a Jackson Hole meeting, where the uh, central bankers will be talking about where we're going in the world. But uh, let's kick off as normal, Simon. Uh, first of all, welcome you back. And then let's kick off by asking you what has happened in the market this week. Well, it's uh, it's good to be back. And as you correctly observe, it's been a relatively quiet week, a nice one to slip yourself back into action. Certainly the UK market for the first Four days of the week uh, is up in positive territory, probably up about 0.7% uh, to the end of Thursday. And the investment company sector is broadly in line with it. Uh, though actually the sector average discount has widened out a little bit this week, probably started the week at about 2% or so and finds itself nearer to 2.4%, 2.5%. And just to remind people in terms of the year-to-date numbers, well, the UK market's probably up about 15% so far this year, and that's the head of the uh, FTSE World Index over the same time parameter. And investment companies have lagged. They're probably up about 10% or so. But you're right, it's certainly a quieter week, and we can see that in terms of the amount of shares being traded through the London market uh, I did read somewhere that uh, volumes were down about a third uh, over the 30-day average this week. And certainly, I can tell you in the investment company sector that the average daily volume uh, so far this week is 25% lower than the average over the previous six months, so significantly lower. But you're absolutely correct that the market is very much focused on Jackson Hole and the speech that will be made today. And, and really, the question, uh, what are the Federal Reserve likely to do with regard to uh, tapering uh, the stimulus. Obviously, uh, economic data is broadly positive, um, but the impact of the Delta variant is a key concern. But there has been some good news uh, in the marketplace this week. In terms of global dividends, they're predicted to return to 2019 levels by next year, though clearly in the UK, we are quite focused on the disruptions to supply chains. And I see that uh, McDonald's has run out of milkshakes as well. So some mixed economic news there. Indeed. Well, I think I can live with the last piece of news myself, but uh, it's obviously a problem for some people. Uh, we should mention, of course, also there have been these terrible scenes in Afghanistan this week. But I think this is a, exactly an example where this dominated the news headlines, but it has only a marginal impact on the financial markets. Uh, there will be some, obviously, some longer term strategic issues arising from this in terms of, you know, balance of power globally and so on. But it's very hard to translate that back into what it means for the financial market. So I think they've largely shrugged off that news, though uh, one can, uh, of course, only have sympathy for those who are caught up in this uh, very unfortunate set of circumstances. Let's move on and talk about some corporate activity that has been a little bit this week. We can start off by talking about the Aberdeen Asian Income Fund. That is AAIF is the ticker. They've had something to say about their plans. What can you tell us about that, Simon? Yeah, so two developments for Aberdeen Asian Income Fund. Uh, they published a circular uh, with proposals to become a UK tax resident and join the UK's investment trust regime. What does that mean? Well, not an awful lot, really, to ongoing uh, shareholders. Basically, the majority of UK traded investment companies are what we call onshore, so they're domiciled in the UK itself. But a significant number are domiciled in the uh, offshore or in the Channel Islands. And that's the case with Aberdeen Asian Income Fund. It's a Jersey domiciled uh, investment company, and uh, it's in good company, actually. So within its peer group, you'll find funds such as Henderson Far East Income, are also based in Jersey. They're obviously traded in the London market. I mean, for as I say, for ongoing shareholders, it doesn't have any real implications, uh, but it does need approval before that move can be made. Um, what uh, will be more notable is that they're also looking to change their name. And I think this is something that we talked about in months gone by. Aberdeen Asian Income are looking to change their name to Aberdeen Asian Income Fund Limited, but the difference being that Aberdeen will be spelt without any vowels. So this is the first of the Aberdeen Standard Investments stable uh, that's put its head above the parapet. Uh, and I, th I think it's uh, quite notable that uh, in the statement, it did make the point that 
uh, the migration of the tax residency is not conditional on the change of name approval. In other words, the two things will be treated separately. Yes, well, that's very interesting. So just to be clarify that, as we know, uh, Aberdeen decided to go for this, uh, for, I guess, for branding purposes rather than anything else, marketing purposes, to change the name of the management company to ABRDN, as you say, with no vowels and no capital letters either. So this is uh, back to the nursery, you could say. I must say, if I was on the board of this trust, I would be thinking this was um, largely irrelevant, I would think I would say, <laughs> and possibly an irritation. We're interested to see how the shareholders vote on this one. You get a chance to vote on the change of name. Interesting to see whether the shareholders will reject this new abbreviated vowelless capital letter less name. Uh, but just on this point about the the red, so it, it won't affect shareholders here. So why is the board of this particular trust doing it in that case? Why are they making this change to bring it back to the UK regime? Yeah, no, it's a good point. And actually, it kind of goes in the face of what we've seen probably over the last 10 years, possibly even longer, where those investment companies, perhaps with a, a yield requirement or a yield mandate, and possibly with uh, quite a significant amount of overseas income, have domiciled themselves offshore just because it, it, it adds greater tax efficiency. This move is, is coming the other way. It's coming back onshore. And in the blurb around the announcement, they, they say that UK tax residency will enable the fund to benefit from double taxation treaties, lowering withholding tax applicable to dividends received, increasing revenue available for distribution. So I, I guess the bottom line is they've sat down and worked out that it makes more sense to be uh, onshore than offshore. And that's, uh, as I say, in contrast to the pattern that we've seen over the previous 10 years. So that sort of implies to me that they think they can draw more on reserves in order to sustain their yield, basically. Would that be right? They've got more reserves to uh, to draw on. Is, would that be the logical implication of that? I think it's more to do with the income uh, as received. I mean, obviously, when you get paid by companies uh, around the world, there can be friction costs, obviously taxation being one of the most obvious ones. And where your domicile does make a difference in that calculation. So I guess they've received advice from their, their specialist advisors and their tax accountants that actually to be onshore makes sense for them. I mean, what will be interesting will be to see whether this starts a trend for those um, overseas equity income type plays, of which there are, there are a number, as I'm sure you're aware, whether they also look to seek to come back on, on shore over the next few years. Indeed. So let's move on and uh, talk briefly about uh, BH Macro which has BHMG and BHMU, the two share classes, $1, one sterling. What have they had to say? We know they're completing a merger with BH Global. We've talked about that a lot in the last few weeks. So what's, uh, what's the update they've uh, provided on that score? Well, this has all basically happened now. So BH Macro is the ongoing vehicle and shares have been issued to those, those people in BH Global who elected for the share option. And we were basically waiting for the NAV as at the uh, end of July, 31st of July, which was duly published a, a day or two ago. So basically, the new shares in BH Macro will begin trading on the 31st of August, so Tuesday next week. And from that moment on, there is just BH Macro. But what's interesting, I think, is that its total net assets will come in at 874 million, which is a decent size investment company. And I think when we've talked about this in the past, we made the point that the two together, so BH Macro and BH Global, had assets in aggregate of, of a billion. We knew there was going to be a cash option, there was a tender offer, and we knew that there would be some shrinkage. But to kind of start off with 874 million and it's trading on a significant premium, I think gives BH Macro and its kind of new lease of life a very good start. And of course, not bad for Brevin Howard also, who now have the benefit of the higher fees that they've managed to negotiate uh, along the way here. So that's uh, very interesting. That's gone through. And uh, well, you talked about the size of this uh, trust now, and it's uh, getting pretty close to the same size as third point investors who have also been in the news this week. This is a hedge fund, as you know. And look, tell us what's been going on there. This has been the, where we've had a bit of a, a battle between uh, some shareholders and the board. What's the latest on that particular saga? And it is a saga. I think it will be an ongoing saga. You'll remember back in May, I think we first discussed this when a gentleman called Tom Trina, who's the head of research at Asset Value Investors, uh, wrote a public letter to the board of Third Point Investors 
uh, very unhappy with the way that the company was going, particularly the way that it was looking to tackle its discount, accused its investment manager, Daniel Loeb, as uh, displaying contempt for shareholder rights and good governance. So that was the start of the battle, really. More recently, Asset Value Investors plus three other shareholders tried to requisition the board. That was unsuccessful. The board pushed back and suggested that they'd been advised that the requisition at that stage was ineffective. That's a legal definition because it infringed on the board's ability and obligation to manage the fund. Uh, So asset value investors are undaunted and they've come back again with the three other shareholders. So collectively, they own 17% of the share capital and over 10% of the voting rights. They've requisitioned again, and this requires the board to hold a non-binding advisory vote for an ordinary resolution to allow shareholders to redeem their holdings on terms that matches other investors in the underlying master fund. And you know, as before, asset value investors made the point that they continue to harbour, and I quote, grave concerns as to the integrity of the process of third point investors strategic review and its conclusions so this battle rolls on yes and it is a curious one isn't it in a sense because if one looks at how third point investors uh, has been performing i mean if you look at its results i'm looking at the ASC numbers here five-year share price total return 116 percent that's uh not unreasonable, you'd have to say. And over 10 years, 244%. That's not unreasonable either. You'd say that's pretty good. That compares uh, very well with others in the sector and indeed in uh, most other sectors as well. And the discount, I mean, the issue, one of the issues being around the discount, and that'll also come in a little bit. So do you think that the asset value investors and their other related parties uh, are going to win something substantial out of this or not? Well, it's a tricky one, to be perfectly honest, not least because it's quite a complicated voting structure as well. And I think we've discussed this in the past, but 40% of the share capital in third point investors is in the hands of a trustee. And that was put in at launch because of a large number of US shareholders. It had had to be some kind of protection in place. In addition, Daniel Loeb, the aforementioned investment manager, he owns 17% of the company. So really, those two blocks of votes hold a huge sway. And the reality is that unless those blocks are not voted, that it's very difficult to see how asset value investors or anybody can really kind of affect change or push the board in a direction they're not happy with. It's interesting, we did see at the AGM for this fund back in uh, early July, that 37% of shares voted were against one of the directors, who also happened to be the chief operating officer of third point. So in other words, he was a connected director, he wasn't independent. And also 23% of the shares voted were against the proposed exchange facility that the board had come up with. This was their mechanism that they'd put on the table in order to alleviate the discount. And again, it's a slightly complicated one, but essentially allows shareholders who have more than $10 million to convert into the equivalent Cayman fund at a 7.5% discount. So there's a kind of natural arbitrage there. uh, And that will actually happen in October this year. But again, significant number voted against that. So difficult to see how this all plays out. I think the board will say, well, look, the discount has moved in. We've put a number of measures in place. We have received shareholder approval for that proposed exchange facility. Let's see how it all turns out. But again, it doesn't look like asset value investors are backing down either. Yes, and it's fair to say, I think, that this is a complicated uh, structure, which is often the case with hedge funds and so on. Uh, It's not a plain vanilla kind of simple shareholding structure for the reasons that you've mentioned. And it doesn't seem to me that asset value investors are sort of winning at the moment, though the discount has come in. What have you got the shares uh, trading on at the moment, Simon? You make a good point. So third point investors probably trading uh, between an 11 and 12% discount. That's called 11.7 to be more precise. And that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about 17% although it has been as wide as 28% in that time. I'm sure those involved with third-point investors will point to Asset Value Investors' own investment trust company, so AVI Global Trust, a very long-standing investment trust previously known as British Empire Securities, and that's actually trading on about a 10% discount at the moment, so not too dissimilar to the level that third-point finds itself on. Yes, I'm sure that may be a, a point that they make in due course. So a little bit of uh, put your own house in order, perhaps, might be something they'd be tempted to say anyway if you were uh, sitting at third point investors. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about uh, some fundraising. Obviously, this is August, a very quiet market. So 
not normally a time I, I guess you'd expect to see a lot of fundraising, but there is one trust which is going to go out there and try and raise some money, and that is Target Healthcare REIT, T-H-R-L. What have they done? Well, they've announced that they're looking to raise around about £100 million, um, and that's under an existing placing programme. Effectively, they've identified a pipeline of acquisition opportunities. Um, the fundraising will be done at a price of 115p. That represents a 6% discount to their closing price just prior to when they announce this fundraising, and a 4% premium to their last reported EPRA NAV. The placing closes on the 9th of September, so we'll find out in a few weeks' time how they've done. But certainly the last time they came to the market to raise additional capital, that was back in March, at that stage they raised £60 million, uh, and that was oversubscribed. That was at 111p per share, so this price is north of that. And they provided a bit of uh, detail in terms of their pipeline. Total's £230 million. It consists of 18 operational modern care homes, uh, and they're in advanced negotiations for a debt facility, £100 million of long-term debt, in order for them to be able to fund that. So um, they obviously are quite positive on their chances. So there's a couple of trusts in this particular segment, the UK healthcare segment. What's the relative performance of those two? I mean, which is the bigger and which is trading on the wider premium? Well, the most comparable uh, investment company to target is Impact Healthcare REIT. Both Impact and Target are trading on premium ratings. Um, the numbers I've got, Impact are probably on about a 7% premium. Target are probably on about a 10% premium. Target has the longer standing of the two. Uh, it's got a market cap just above $600 million, whereas Impact Healthcare is probably about £410 million market cap. In terms of their dividend, their net yields, certainly on a historic basis, Impact is coming in at 5.5% and Target is in at 57 And actually... Uh, they provided some detail over their target dividend. They reinstated that for 2022 at 6.76p, um, and that represents a 0.6% annual increase and a 5.9% yield on the uh, issue price. So obviously a yield, a key part of the story. And these premiums, I mean, they've been there for some time, have they not? Have they weakened at all like some of the other alternative asset trusts have done recently, or are they uh, still trading roughly where they were? No, I think the premium ratings have held up quite well on both of these funds, actually. So again, Impact probably traded on an average premium of about 1% or so over the previous 12 months. As I said, it's 7 now. Target average premium rating over the previous 12 months of 6, so it's on about a 9 10% level now. So again, I think the ratings look relatively robust at the moment. It'll be interesting to see how the fundraising plans go for Target. Okay, so we've got a few results to talk about. We'll move on to those now. Let's kick off with uh, J.P. Morgan American, J-A-M or JAM, JAM today. We hope a JAM tomorrow. Uh, they produced their interim results for the six months to the 30th of June. That's right. And you know, decent, solid set of results here. So the NAV total return was up 15.4%. That compared with a rise of 13.9% for the S&P 500 index. Share price terms, not quite as good, actually, broadly in line with that uh, benchmark index up 139 uh, And that reflects the fact that discount widened slightly. And that's despite the fact they actually bought 2.5 million shares back in the period, uh, over 1% of the share capital. But uh, the main drivers of outperformance were sector allocation and gearing, which averaged about 5% or so in that six-month period. The large cap portfolio outperformed the S&P 500, but actually their small cap allocation dragged a little bit during that time. But it is an interesting fund, actually. So back in June 2019, it adopted a hybrid value and growth approach, um, and certainly in terms of its large cap portfolio. So for those people unfamiliar with this, because it is a little bit different, there are two managers, Tim Parton and Jonathan Simon, that are both hugely experienced New York-based investment managers. But one's very much a growth manager, that's Tim, and one has a, a kind of value approach. And the idea is that both of them have their kind of 20 best ideas. So the large cap portfolio consists of 40 holdings, 20 of which are growth stocks and 20 of which are value stocks. And the idea is by adopting that hybrid approach that you negate the style bias that obviously happens from time to time in the marketplace. And the again, the intention is that over the long term, by taking kind of style off the table, it's really uh, the stock selection that drives the performance. Uh, and certainly if you look at the performance year to date and compare it with I don't know, Bailey Gifford, US Growth, for instance, which has a very strong track record, but as the name would suggest, quite a growth investment approach. Then JP Morgan American has outperformed this year, year to date. 
Yes, it's done very well. I actually, um, one of these trusts, I don't actually know the history, but I see that it was uh, launched in 1881. So it's uh, one of the few that's actually survived uh, this over that long period. And uh, its uh, performance has not been at all bad, has it? I mean, as you say, you mentioned Bailey Gifford US has done exceptionally well since it launched. But the uh, the long-term track record of this particular trust is, um, uh, has been pretty reasonable. And uh, perhaps one of the few that actually belies the general observation that UK fund managers have generally struggled to do well in the in the US market. Can you remind us what its original name was, Simon? Can I test you on that? Oh, my goodness. No, but you've obviously got the answer at your fingertips to embarrass me. When I joined the sector, it was called Fleming American back at the, uh, the start of the millennium. But go on, what was it in 1881? Uh, well, I have to be honest, I don't know. So. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Okay. But, ah, so you turn the tables on me there. Uh, but maybe it was a Fleming Trust, was it? I mean, Fleming did start their investment trust back in that sort of period. Oh, my God, we're totally short of information here. So I'll have <laughs> to um, see whether I can find out before the end of the podcast what I should have known before I was stupidly asked the question. Okay, so <laughs> let's move on and talk about uh, another J.P. Morgan investment trust. So this is the J.P. Morgan U.S. Smaller Companies Trust, J.U.S.C., They've also had interim results for the same period, and we can contrast and compare. What were the results of this trust like? Well, they underperformed. Their NAV total return was up 10.9%, and that compared with a rise of 16.2% for the Russell 2000 index. Share price terms, not as good, actually up 7.8% as the shares moved from a 2% premium to a small discount, although they did issue new shares during the period. So the story here is one of uh, stock selection. That was the primary driver of underperformance, although gearing was a positive. And uh, really, the story from the investment manager is that it reflects the focus on quality companies. And this is a similar story to that we found for a number of UK smaller companies that obviously, particularly in the first quarter of this year, when we really did see that kind of vaccine bounce, some small cap managers have kind of uh, likened it to being the dash for trash some more cyclical lower value or lower quality uh, companies, in their view, uh, benefited during that period. And those with a quality bias have struggled. And I suspect that would be the claim for JP Morgan US smaller companies. Um, but if you actually look in the portfolio and what how it's done this period, well, it's um, consumer discretionary technology and basic material sectors have detracted uh, the most. Conversely, the stock selection and sector allocation within healthcare and utilities benefited performance. It's also worth noting that the manager, and actually I think he's been the manager since 2009, Don, Don San Jose, obviously mispronounced terribly, but he's actually taking on the additional role of Chief Investment Officer at JP Morgan Asset Management's US value team. And actually his small cap team will move across this group, although that reorganization is not expected to change the management of this particular investment trust. So, I mean, there can't be that many trusts to compare this one with, but uh, what can you tell us about its performance uh, more recently over the medium term? Well, it's only over five years. It's generated an NAV total return of 90%. Uh, and just to put some uh, comparative numbers on that, the Russell 2000 index, and that's normally seen as the kind of benchmark for US smaller companies, that's up 72%. So it has outperformed over that five-year period. Probably its nearest competitor uh, is Brown Advisory US Smaller Companies. And this, we've talked about this in the past, but this was previously in the Jupiter stable. Brown Advisory only took over the management of this company uh, about the turn of this year. So uh, a very short period of time really to, to compare it with. Um, and just over the last six months, Brown Advisory is slightly ahead. But as I say, very short period that they've been responsible for that one. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about some specialist trusts now. Let's uh, kick off with the BBGI Global Infrastructure. <coughs> BBGI is also the ticker. Interim results for the same period. And uh, what are they uh, reported? So the NAV was up, but only very slightly. So it was up 0.03% to 137.8p. Um, BBGI Global Infrastructure's assets uh, stood about 918 million at the end of June. Uh, and really, the story here is that uh, the increase in the UK corporate tax rate detracted from that NAV performance. And also, they had some foreign exchange uh, losses as well, or certainly unrealized losses. The weighted average discount rate that they use across the portfolio to value the assets, that stood at 6.56%. That was down from 6.77% at the end of December, and that would have benefited 
the valuations. But in terms of actually how the portfolio is performing, then cash receipts were ahead of expectations. And in fact, the, the board are obviously taking some confidence for that because they've restated their dividend target for this year of 7.33p. And that represents a 2.1% increase on last year. And actually, they've provided guidance for next year and for 2023 uh, and looking to increase that dividend by 2% for both those years. The cash dividend cover for the first six months of this year came in at 1.55%, although in the analyst call accompanying the results, Frank Schramm and Duncan Ball made the point uh, that that tends to be a little bit front-ended loaded. So they'd expect to see that near to about 1.2 times covered by the year-end. But basically, the story is pretty solid. There's been no material adverse operational financial impacts from the the pandemic. They continue to build the portfolio out. So four operational assets were acquired for £75 million, and they were all based in the UK and backed by public sector counterparties. And they repaid what modest cash borrowings that they had back in August, and that followed some uh, fundraising in July. But uh, this this is a portfolio of availability-based infrastructure products, probably about 50, 51 or so. And certainly the mantra seems to be boring is beautiful. This is the ideally meant to be a steady performer. Yes, and it does trade on a significant premium. As you said, I think it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in the infrastructure, uh, general infrastructure space. Uh, why do you think that is? How does it compare in terms of yield? Is it a yield story uh, that's uh, resulted in the premium or is it uh, some other factors? Well, the yield is coming in about 4.1% on a historic basis. And obviously, we're going to see those dividends increase, assuming the target's hit by uh, 2% or so over the next two or three years. But I think really that premium rating reflects the uh, underlying portfolio. And as I said, it's an availability-based infrastructure products. And just to be very clear, what that means is that as long as those projects are available, as they were just operating, then the investment company gets paid. So there is no economic sensitivity in this portfolio. So if you look at you look through the list of what they own, it's it's things like uh, bridges, health facilities, educational facilities. It's very much kind of public sector orientated, um, and they have a, a pretty solid track record. I think it's coming up for about ten years that this fund has been up and running, and actually they're self managed as well. That's probably worth noting. So that's another differentiator. So there is no kind of third party investment manager agreement in place here. Everybody's employed by the investment company. There's been a lot of fundraising in the infrastructure sector, as we know this year, particularly by some of the other trusts in the sector, which are now bigger than BBGI is, even though they've been around for a shorter period of time in some cases. Do you think that the fundraising in this particular sector is going to continue? Yeah, no, you make a really good point. I mean, BBGI, just to be clear, raised 75 million back in July. So they've been back to the market relatively recently, but they they make the point that pricing is very, very competitive in infrastructure in general, that a lot of what they would consider to be high quality assets are highly sought after. Pricing can get quite extended. So they're very, very careful in terms of how they deploy new capital. And they make the point that as a self-managed infrastructure investment company, they're not really incentivized to grow assets uh, as you would be if you were an investment manager earning a percentage of the pot. So they would consider themselves to be very discerning. They've also got agreements uh, in place with a number of constructors. And so they have some visibility on pipeline, assuming those assets are uh, ready for them to invest in. So I think they've identified a number of opportunities. So could they raise additional money in the future? It's it's certainly a possibility in order to meet those kind of pipeline requirements. Although, as I mentioned, they have paid off their debt relatively recently. So one would assume that the, the normal pattern of events is that when people come to make new acquisitions, they tend to do it on a credit facility or they tend to use loan financing initially before then having to come back to the marketplace. But overall, I think the ratings in the infrastructure space tell you that these are assets in demand, that people are still looking for income. They're still looking for asset classes that are uncorrelated to uh, broader markets, be their equities or bonds. And therefore, infrastructure still would appear to have a place in many people's portfolios. Yes, I think that's an interesting point you make about the difference between a self-managed and externally managed trust. It obviously is the case if you have what we call an ad valorem fee, which is based on the size of the company, then there is an incentive on the fund management uh, company's part to grow the trust because they get paid more in terms of fees, though in many cases these do get uh, trimmed the bigger the company gets. They get tailored down a little bit, but it's still a net positive. So that's something perhaps that uh, investors should watch out for. 
Let's move on and talk about Invesco Bond Income Plus, which has the uh, ticker BIPS, B-I-P-S. They've also had some interim results. That's right. Interim results for the six months again to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 4.3%, and that compared to a rise of 3.3% for their benchmark. Uh, in share price terms, it actually did come in at 3.3%, uh, and that's just a reflection of the fact their discount widened slightly from 2% to 3%. The dividend for the period equated to 5.25p, and so therefore they're on track for a, a full-year dividend of 10.75p. And in fact, their annual dividend target of 11p for the following three years is considered achievable and sustainable. And it's worth noting that this investment trust previously was known as City Merchants High Yield uh, and merged with Invesco Enhanced Income relatively recently, actually. So it's increased the net assets to over £330 million. But it's managed by a chap called Reese Davies. He's been responsible for the portfolio since 2014. Uh, and again, the investment managers report there's some good commentary about what he's been doing and, and obviously some good insight into the bond market, um, been taking a bit of money off the table where he thinks the balance of risks uh, has changed over the six month period. So taking some money away from uh, retailers uh, and he's responded to the inflation risk as well by keeping certainly those uh, bonds with interest rate sensitivity low and sticking to high yielding bonds. Right. So when we talk about a, a bond income plus, this is uh a new way of describing a high yield investment trust, I guess. That's the uh, that's perhaps the new way of talking about it. People can't really claim that a yield of whatever it is is uh, is actually high yield anymore when the numbers are so low. So this is the kind of trust that you might own if you're interested in a, in a kind of low but hopefully steady uh, yield. Is that right? I mean, how does the yield on this one compare to others it might be compared against? So we've got the yield on a historic basis at 5.6% at the moment. Um, but as I said, it's, it's probably worth looking at that annual dividend target of 11p, assuming that they manage to hit it over the next few years. But the average yield in its peer group is probably about 5% or so. So that there is a range. Uh, we've got it certainly in the debt, in the kind of loans and bonds bucket. Um, so there's a few funds there. We probably don't talk about this area of the marketplace too much, but better known uh, investment trust companies, probably Henderson Diversified Income, and um, that has a yield of just over 5%. M&G credit income, that's at the lower end, about 3% or so, 3.1%. Uh, and MB, global monthly income, uh, that's coming in at about 5% at the moment. So, you know, broadly speaking, it's in that kind of ballpark. Okay, let's uh, move on and talk about Pershing Square Holdings, uh, PSH. This has been very much in the news recently for a whole number of reasons. You've probably missed part of this, another endless saga involving a hedge fund trust. We talked about third-point investors with Dan Loeb. This is Bill Ackman's investment trust. Uh, he's another well-known American hedge fund manager, and they at least have produced some interim results. And uh, they had a spectacular year last year. How have they done so far this year? Yeah, quite a year, I think it'd be probably fair to say. So far, in terms of their NAV performance anyway, uh, interim results for six months to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 7.3%. And that compared with a rise of 15.2% for the S&P 500. The share price total return came in at 4.7% as the discount widened out a little bit. So the underperformance uh, was attributed to mark-to-market losses on uh, Persian Square Tontine. So in other words, the SPAC that I think you've been discussing in recent weeks. And also investments in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as well. I think everything else was in positive territory, but certainly those three detracted from the numbers. The results also provided a little bit of an update in terms of the lawsuit that's come in, alleging that the SMAC, Pushing Square Tontine, is operating as an illegal investment company. So they're looking to launch a new SPAC structure, is my understanding. Uh, they've certainly been proposed, although they're waiting SEC approval, and that would mitigate the impact uh, of the lawsuit. They also provided some detail on the fact that they've invested $2.5 in Universal Music Group, and they've got an option to uh, increase that position as well. And in terms of more general portfolio activity, they've exited Starbucks in the period, and they've invested in Domino Pizza. So a few things going on here. Indeed, there are. And obviously, this story about the SPAC is quite interesting for those who are interested in that kind of rather exotic, uh, if you like, clever clogs uh, activity that hedge funds like to specialise in. But it does seem that... Uh, Bill Ackman has got himself in a little bit of trouble with uh, the SEC and the lawsuit by trying to be, uh, I think I described it uh, as uh, too clever by half, but uh, that's just my point of view, of course. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. 
But anyway, the discount has widened again. So that's uh, quite interesting. It's back out to what? What have you said? 25%, that sort of thing. And uh, it's, uh, its future remains a little unclear, I would say. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you're, you're absolutely right about the discount. I've got it on about a 29% discount at the moment, and that compares to an average of about 26 27% or so over the previous 12 months. So, I mean, it, it does tend to wing around a little bit over that previous 12-month period. It's gone between about a 19% discount and a 36% discount. And bearing in mind that this is a, an investment trust company with a market cap of over £5 billion, and that's in sterling. You don't find too many with that kind of wide discount. So it begs a few questions. I'm sure people like Asset Value Investors have, have had a look at it, uh, those people who have a more value-orientated investment style. But it's worth remembering that, that Bill Ackman himself does own a big, big chunk of the equity of this one. But even so, I suspect, and in fact, they did mention in the interim results that the, the discount is a, is a source of annoyance for them. I think it would be fair to say. Yes, I think they have said that in the past. And uh, without going through all the torturous details of the SPAC, I mean, what it does mean is that um, Pershing Square Holders just ended up committing to make this very large investment in Universal Music, which is going to be quite a big chunk of its uh, asset base, rather than putting it through the SPAC as it originally intended. So that's uh, very much changed the nature of the portfolio, I would say. Uh, and it remains to be seen what um, steps he's going to take to deal with that once that uh, investment is actually vested in uh, I think it's next month that the Universal Music Holdings is meant to come to fruition, that uh, acquisition. Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, private equity. We've got BMO Private Equity, BPET is the ticker. They've had some interim results for the first six months, and they've done pretty well, I think. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. They have done well. So in that six-month period to the end of June, they had an NAV total return of 15.4%. In share price total return terms, it was even better, up 39.1%, and that reflected the fact that the discount moved from about 37% to 24% uh, in that time. Um, they benefited from a number of valuation uplifts, um, so holdings such as Weird Fish, which is apparently a clothing company, Hughes Gray, which is a, a builder's merchant and pet network. They all saw material uplifts during that six-month period. Um, they also saw a very high level of realizations, um, £69.5 million. Pounds, and I think that represented something like double what they saw for the whole of 2020. Uh, and that included a realization of, in a, of a company, a co investment they had in a company called Dogmatics that they got back about £31 million pounds for. So, um, lots of portfolio activity uh, on the realization side. They made uh, a couple of new investments and actually more since the end of June. Um, and they've also paid out quarterly dividends as well. So they do have a bit of a dividend on this one. So on a historic basis, they're yielding about 3.7% at the moment. So uh, Hamish Nair, uh, long-standing investment manager of this one, certainly a, a quite a upbeat, bullish investment manager's report, as you might expect, given this set of results. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about HG Capital Trust, another private equity trust. And what have they been uh, had to say? Yeah, well, we await uh, HG Capital Trust's interim results as at the 30th of June. They're due to be published on the 6th of September. But actually, what they have announced in the previous week or so is a number of investments. They've certainly uh, appear to have got their checkbook out. So I'll just run through these quickly. But I think the point is that they give you some insight into, A, there's actually quite a lot of activity going on across the private equity sector, and in particular for HG Capital, and also the nature of the type of companies that they, they're looking to back. So they're investing £20 million in a company called Managed Markets Insight and Technology. And as the name would suggest, um, this is a very much a kind of tech play, but it provides commercial intelligence and predictive analytics to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, they're getting £9 million at work uh, in the investment of a company called Risk Allies, which is a US risk-centric wealth management platform that services financial advisors, enterprises and asset managers. Uh, and they're also looking to make a £24 million uh, investment in a company called Sorella. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. And that's a global financial automation and business-to-business -business payments software company. So tech-enabled businesses are very much to the forefront of what HD Capital are looking to, to do. Indeed. Uh, and so before we can perhaps compare how these uh, various trusts are trading, why some like HGT are trading at a premium and others are trading at discount, let's move on and talk quickly about Pantheon International, PIN, also in the private equity sector. What have they had to say? 
Yep. So they provided a monthly NAV as at the end of July. That was up about 0.4% or so from the end of June, though. To be fair, I suspect the valuations, the underlying valuations, most of which will be as at the end of March, I would imagine. Um, but basically, they saw some positive valuation gains. Uh, and that was despite the fact that uh, foreign exchange movements were not in their favour during that period. But in terms of the, the level of activity, I think the story is consistent across all these private equity guys that overall that things are pretty positive at the moment, that they are seeing good deal flow, uh, both in terms of realisation, so actually selling investments they own, and in terms of uh, opportunities to deploy new cash. And certainly, you know, you look at Pantheon International in terms of their balance sheet, uh, they've got net available cash, or they did have at the end of July of about £200 million pounds, um, with their private equity assets over £1.7 So. Um, they've still got a bit of firepower there. And then finally, we can look at uh, Princess Private Equity. That's uh, ticker PEY. They've announced a transaction. That's right. It's another sale. This is a company called Strave. It was previously known as SPI Global, which is a global provider of technology-driven content and data solutions. Uh, and so basically, the transaction valued Princess Private Equity stake uh, in about uh, just short of $19 million. And that was above the carrying value, which was nearer to about $18 million. So they get a nice uplift from that. But again, they gave us uh, an updated NEV as at the end of July. That was up month on month, about 0.6%. Again, reflecting positive portfolio developments, though currency movements in this particular instance were flat. But what I think is also interesting with Princess Private Equity is they actually received quite a lot of cash back from some of their underlying Realization. So they had uh, holdings in a company called International Schools Partnership and another company called Global Logic, and they received over 100 million euros from both those uh, investments. Okay. So just finally, then looking across the sector as a whole, the discounts have been coming in, which is good news for shareholders uh, generally. But these uh, four that we've talked about, how do their ratings compare? So HD Capital Trust, I think, as you mentioned, is sitting on a, on a premium of probably about 20, 22% or so. Though it's worth noting, we are waiting to receive the NAV as at the 30th of June. So we're working off an old NAV at the moment. And one might expect that the NAV to have increased in the interim period. So that premium rating might not be quite as high as it would initially appear. Princess Private Equity um, on a discount of about 9% or so. BMO Private Equity, I mean, the rating on BMO Private Equity has been incredible, really. In the previous 12 months, it's been as wide as 41% discount. Uh, it's average 23% discount. At the moment, it finds itself on a 7% discount. So considerable amount of discount volatility. So if you've, you've played that correctly, you'll have done quite well just in terms of the discount tightening. And obviously, as I mentioned, there's been some very good NAV growth as well. Um, and then the other one I think we talked about was Pantheon International. That's sitting out on a 19% discount, and that compares with an average of 22% over the previous 12 months. Okay, so one of the points you mentioned before in the past has been that there is a, a difference between some of these private equity trusts that invest in other funds and those that invest directly in individual companies. Is there any pattern in the difference in the discounts between those two different types of private equity trusts? Well, I think as a rule, I mean, there is a quite a lot of variation across the private equity field. I mean, as a rule of thumb, the more concentrated the portfolio coupled with a strong performance record, that probably helps. Um, that leads you to a higher rating. And that would certainly be the case for HG Capital Trust. Conversely, those are more diversified portfolios. So those fund of funds, they seem to be struggling a little bit to gain interest. And we talked about Pantheon, but equally Standard Life Private Equity, ICG Enterprise, Harbourvest, Global Private Equity, these are all uh, very respective uh, investment managers, but they're all trading out around 20% discounts. So they certainly are wide uh, on a historical basis. But in each of those instances, I think they have tightened a little bit to your point earlier. They have tightened in recent uh, months. Finally, then, we're going to quickly uh, look at a couple of property investment trusts uh, where we've had some news this week. First of all, there's been an update from GCP Student Living. Uh, that's Diggs is the ticker. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk in the media about what's happening with uh, students and the outlook for the coming years, how they're going to be taught and so on, and the numbers after coronavirus. What's the update from uh, GCP Student Living? Uh, well, they've announced this week, just in terms of where they are with regard to bookings, following the A-level results day on the 10th of August. So bookings, unsurprisingly, have picked up. So as at the 20th of August, bookings for the 2021-22 academic year stood at about 56%. Now, that compares with 95% at the same point in 2019 
and in fact 63% at the same point in 2020. So the team there continue to anticipate the booking season for 21-22 academic year, certainly being condensed and back-ended, but uh, total bookings are expected to be impacted by global travel restrictions. Um, but again, it's just worth noting on GCP Student Living that we have got this uh, recommending cash offer on the table. I think we talked about that uh, in weeks gone by. So the share price of this one has got support from that cash offer on the table. Yes. So depending on what happens, uh, that could turn out to be quite a timely or well thought out uh, acquisition proposal if they can see further than uh, perhaps the trust itself is able to see at the moment in terms of future bookings. Finally, let's talk about Warehouse REIT. WHR is the ticker there. They've had a trading update. They have, and they're very busy. I think it's probably the headline here. Uh, they've made four acquisitions for a total of £13 million, and that reflected a blended net initial yield of about 5% or so. Um, they've also exchanged contracts to acquire 16 acres of land, joining the existing Radway Green Multilet Estate outside Crewe. Um, there have also been 20 new lettings completed, at uh, 7% at the end of March, expected rental values. So as I mentioned, lots of portfolio activity with warehouse REIT. In terms of their total occupancy level, that actually was down from about 95.6% at the end of March to 94.2% at the end of July, just, so just down slightly. But effectively, there's quite a few units there that are under refurbishment or under offer to let. In terms of the total rent due on the June quarter date, that came in at 94.5% had been collected as of the 17th of August, and they expect that to continue to increase in line with the previous quarters. Okay, so that brings us, I think, to the end this week, Simon. We've, uh, say, it's been an abbreviated week uh, in terms of the announcements that have been made compared to some weeks. But what do you think? When does normally the market start to pick up? You said the trading has been quiet this month and people are on holiday, obviously. So is it normally we could expect the first week of September to see volumes pick up again, or is it take a little bit longer for people to come back from the beach these days? Uh, no, it's a good point. I mean, ordinarily, you expect to see trading volumes certainly pick up in, in September. I always think October's probably one of the most interesting months of the year for the stock market. I think by then, people are very much have their feet back under the table. They're very much focused on how things have gone. You've got good visibility in terms of corporate earnings and results. Uh, and as you well know, we have seen some quite significant sell-offs in October in years gone by. But I, my expectation would be that as we get into September, that activity will pick up. I think you'll see quite a lot of fundraising attempts in the investment companies sector. Um, and bear in mind that those invariably take about 10 weeks or so to turn around and obviously, the clock is ticking into the year end as well. I think so. I think people will be quite keen to raise additional money. So, all in all, I think September and October will be quite busy months for the market and for the sector. Indeed. And of course, it's worth making, I think, the point that this has been a slightly unusual year in that we've seen the market go up every month so far, certainly the American market every month so far this year, without any kind of significant sell off or correction. Nothing up to as much as 10% even. So uh, there'll be a, some interesting uh, development. That's quite unusual. And if for that to persist throughout the year would certainly be unusual. It only happened a very few times in history. So uh, there's a lot to look out for, I think, in the coming weeks, both in terms of fundraising and results and the direction of the market itself. So, Simon, very good to have you back on the podcast. And uh, we'll look forward to discuss all these exciting things uh, in the weeks to come. Thank you. This week, unusually, I've decided to record a postscript to the weekly podcast, and that stems uh, directly from my lamentable failure to be able to recall the history of the J.P. Morgan American Investment Trust, because it is an interesting history, and I think it deserves a little bit of a wider audience. The trust dates from 1881, I said in the podcast, but uh, it did not originate, obviously, with that name. Uh, it originated as the Alabama, New Orleans, Texas and Pacific Junction Railways Company Limited. This uh, described by the historian of the investment trust sector, John Newlands, in his book, uh, Put Not Your Trust in Money, uh, was a high risk investment by anybody's standard because that company was investing in uh, railroad systems themselves rather than in railroad company shares and bonds, which was what uh, a number of other early investment trusts decided to put their money in as a way of diversifying their holdings away from the UK. In any event, uh, the Alabama, New Orleans, Texas and Pacific Junction Railways Company 
had two principal claims to fame. One is that its assets continue to fall in real terms for no fewer than a hundred years, a somewhat remarkable, persistent, poor performance. And secondly, it became the recipient, retrospectively, of an action by the US Environmental Protection Agency in 1995, which was seeking damages for the costs of cleaning up a former creosote factory in Louisiana, which had originally been built in the 19th century and which the EPA, this regulatory agency, had the powers to seek retrospective compensation for the owners of that company, even if what they were doing at the time was legal. And that company was, of course, by then known as the Fleming American Investment Trust. So what had happened is that the original railroad company made a lot of losses, and that was disposed of, but it turned into something called the Sterling Trust during the First World War, which was raising money for the war effort and later became an investment trust in its own right. That in turn became the Fleming American Investment Trust in 1982. uh, And later, when J.P. Morgan acquired Fleming's business, became what is now known as the J.P. Morgan North American Trust. So that's how this thing evolved. So the antecedents of the trust going back to 1881 were in this obscure and unsuccessful railroad company. And when the news of this uh, lawsuit by the Environmental Protection Agency broke in 1995, it did lead to the shares in Fleming American Investment Trust, as it then was, moved to a big discount. And it was only uh, a little later the following year when uh, the board of the trust decided to settle with the EPA by paying them $4 million uh, without admitting liability. I hasten to add uh, that the shares returned to par. And uh, later on, that became... J.P. Morgan North American Investment Trust. So a little bonus this week, a bit of investment trust history, not without its interest. And uh, my apologies again for not knowing this uh, off the top of my head when uh, the topic came up. Though, of course, Simon was right to know that it had been called the Fleming American Investment Trust from the time long before he joined the city. So I'm afraid I can exempt him from criticism of his lack of knowledge of that particular aspect of the saga. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.